Yeah, hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to urge in the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to urge in the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Listening to following on just four days to go until the third test match gets underway between India and England. The Talksport 2 team bringing you all the action live and exclusively from, unfortunately, our studios in London Bridge because, of course, COVID times that we live in, we can't get out to India. And it made us think in the Talksport Towers about uh, some of the tales from our tours gone by. You've heard the watch alongs in Sri Lanka and also South Africa. We will be recording a West Indies version as well. Uh, but it also brought to mind some of the uh, tall tales that must have taken place from tours gone by. So, for today's show, we're bringing you part one of a conversation between the former England bowler Steve Harmison, the Sun's uh, long-time uh, cricket correspondent, harking back to about 1989, I think, John Etheridge, and the former Mail on Sunday cricket correspondent uh, and cricket paper journalist Peter Hayter, uh, who got together a few weeks before the start of the India-England series just to... Uh, uh, remind each other of some of the uh, the tales from tour life gone by. Second part of this interview will be released tomorrow morning on the following on uh, podcast feed. But for now, sit back and listen uh, to some of the stories from years gone by as the guys go on the road again. I guess, gentlemen, where did it all start? Reggie, you've you, your dad was, you know, the Reg here, the news agency and. I think Dickie Bird tells me, John, that you work for the Reg here at a news agency, very, very first job in cricket. So was that, was Reggie, was it always going to be into the sort of the journal side of, of sport because of the old no, man? No, it was a total uh, accident. In fact, it was the last thing I wanted to do was to be a sports journalist. I had no ambition to do that at all. I, I was, I, I went to university and studied drama and English and, um, uh, I wanted to be. I wanted to do theatre. Funnily enough, a thousand years later, I'm, I'm doing quite a lot of that now. But uh, and it went quite well. But I left after a year at the college because no college could hold me. <laughs> I, I, I joined a pornographic Punch and Judy show, which was my big break, <laughs> uh, and that went well. And then uh, I, I, that stopped because I turned up to start rehearsing for a new show. And the guy who ran it wasn't there. And I said, how long is he going to be? And they said, six months, three with good behaviour, because he got, <laughs> just got sent down for receiving stolen goods. Oh, so no. that was a signal for me to have a career change. So I, I plucked up the courage to ask my old man for a job. And uh, 
ludicrously he gave me one, making tea and sat and fetching sandwiches for people like John. And then I went out on a couple of jobs and then I couldn't actually think of any reason not to carry on. It was, it was an absolute fluke. But then I, I, I stayed with my dad for a couple of years, three or four years. Then I started freelancing on my own, got a job with the Mail on Sunday in 1989 as the cricket writer. And that was where it all started to go wrong. And you, John, you know, you started with the Reggie Hader News Agency and you've been in it for, been following cricket, doing cricket for 40 years. It's, yeah, I think, first, not... of all, first of all, is there something wrong with you? Well, I, that was 1977. I, I, I was a, you know, very keen on cricket. I used to sit at home and score the test matches ball by ball off the TV and off the radio. And uh, I sent some stuff to a guy called Bill Frindle, who was the, the bearded wonder. Used to be the scorer and statistician on, on the radio on, on Test Match Special, and um, surprisingly, he wrote back to me and said, "Yeah, I can I can come and help him." I, I used to go to his house up in North London. I went to the, the Oval Test Match of 1977 and, and phoned over the score, just generally helped out and observed and that sort of stuff. And um, I said to him, "How about I become a, a sports journalist?" Which was something I'd always liked the sound of, but never really thought I'd get the chance to do. And he said, "Well, why don't you um, speak to this guy called Red Chater, who, who was you know." as I subsequently discovered, it was sort of a, a kind of legendary figure in Fleet Street. And um, I went to see Reg, I had an interview, and he gave me a job, pretty much like Peter, as, uh, as a tea boy and messenger doing the post. But uh, if you showed in listen a degree of attitude, Reg would give you a chance. And within six months, I was writing stories for local newspapers and going to games and doing reports, a bit of radio here and there. And uh, I was there for a good number of years until in 1986, I joined the Sun as a... Um, as a, literally a football reporter, and I was a rugby correspondent for a little bit, and been pretty much full time cricket since about 1990. In Reg 89, John 86, you're talking about times without mobile phones and Twitter and everything that goes with that. Must have been some good times and good tours on sort of late 80s, early 90s there. Must have been Reg. No, we had a terrible time, Harley. <laughs> Bloody torture, I can tell you. Um, we had some Barbados and Sydney and uh, on five-star luxury hotels and uh, business class travel, and for a Sunday paper only having to write once a week, which caused <laughs> a bit of consternation among my, my colleagues for several years. No, it was uh, it, it was backbreaking work. I tell you, I, I'm amazed I survived. Uh, I think one of the things actually being a journalist is, that, I mean, you as a player, Harmony, every time you have a, a poor game or an indifferent match, you're looking over your shoulder, you're worried you're going to be dropped, and who's going to take my place, but. Really, unless you absolutely screw up, as a journalist, as a cricket correspondent, you never dropped. You know, <laughs> I, I've never had to worry about about about, about being, being replaced by somebody or you know, being dropped and then recalled. I just go to every game, home and away, uh, without any questions being asked, really. In yeah. the in the time, Reg, at the, the time times of sort of the, that nineties nineties time covering the England side, it was literally what John's saying there. If you had a bad game, you got dropped. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you didn't even have to have that bad a game either. <laughs> uh, just whether it was your turn or not. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 we had a fantastic time in those days. I mean, it's I, I, it's completely different. I imagine I haven't been touring since my last tour was 2014, but I did 25 years. And um, what the stories I could tell you, I could, you know, I should probably write a book, um, <laughs> although very carefully um, and, and uh, delete some of the names how many phone calls would you have to have before you wrote that book? 
or one. <laughs> it just had to be an offer I couldn't understand, and, and the book would be written. Don't worry about it. But uh, I think that I think the critical difference probably now is that we we I I felt we had much stronger and closer access to the players than than they do now. Uh, I mean, we stayed at the same hotels, we were on the same flights, sometimes on the same coaches. Um, in the same bars and there wasn't the pressure in terms of social media mobile phones hadn't really been invented as far as I can remember um, and so there was a much more relaxed atmosphere particularly on tour when you you know you had to bump into someone in a bar and you bought them a drink or they bought you a drink and and you just behave like two blokes in a bar having a drink um, and sometimes but you know perhaps not as you should have done let's say but um you know, the, the atmosphere was much more relaxed. There wasn't this uh, feeling that you had to be uh, watching them all the time and, and reporting on them. There was time when you could actually just be mates. And uh, it was a fantastic privilege, incredible, to be touring with the likes of Ian Botham and David Gower and Alan Lamb and Robin Smith and Phil Tufnell for all those years. My God, I mean, I'm, I'm quite surprised I managed to survive as long as I did in the company of Beefy, for instance, and also toughers because, you know, they took no prisoners. And there are some stories that I could tell you about both and that will get both of us into a lot of trouble. So I won't. But um, suffice to say, we just had a bit of a great time, to be fair. And it was a bit, a bit it didn't feel like a job. It felt like a lottery win. Um, and I was privileged to do it for as long as I did. And uh, I'm sure John will also now tell you some stories about his life that he rather were hushed up. <laughs> I think that's. A, I think you make a good point about you know, you know sort of socialising, entertaining players. You know, twenty, thirty years ago, the cricketers were well paid, well paid, but they weren't um, you know, rich enough to say no to a, to a free meal. And if, if a journalist could buy you know, a couple of players or a nice round of drinks, uh, put it on expenses, then the players would say thanks very much. Now, of course, money's pretty much an object. You know, if you're any sort of England cricketer, you're earning probably a million pounds a year. So. Uh, you know the the, the attractor of a free bit of scoff with, with a with a mucky hack from the tabloid is less appealing, I guess. You know, so I think that's part of it. And I think the social media thing and the phones thing, I mean, is is fundamentally changed everyone's behaviour. Really, I mean, now everybody has a, a camera in their pocket, so it doesn't doesn't bother me or, or the journalists particularly. But the cricketers, they know if they go out and want to let their hair down, have a drink, maybe talk to a talk to a girl, perhaps. There's always somebody lurking with a, with a mobile phone, put a, put a picture, put it on, on Twitter, Instagram, whatever it might be. And that is really inhibiting. And, and that means that they, even when they go out to socialise, they're not able fully to relax. And I can concur with that as well, Reg, because I, I think the 2003, I think the World Cup in 2003, off the back of the Ashes trip, me and Hoggy were in the 15-man squad. And I think we seen, spent more time with the journalists than we did with our, our own teammates because we had no chance of playing. And 7 o'clock every night, we were we were out and, you know, we were enjoying each other's company. And like you said, no social media, no, uh, no mobile phones or, or cameras and anything like that. And, Reg, you mentioned some characters there, names that you've, you've played with. England have had some... You know, they've had some good players over the course of that that early parts of your your sort of journalist careers. The characters that stand out that you think, you know what, you know, they made my job a lot more a lot more enjoyable, whether it was on the field or sometimes off the field. Well, you know, I started with Botham. I, mean, I was very lucky because my father was actually uh, Botham's press agent for a long time in the in the 
70s and 80s. So I knew Ian a little bit, not very well. But I did also play cricket with Angus Fraser in for Stanmore in the Middlesex League a few times. So my debut, as it were, as a, as a cricket writer coincided with Angus's debut in the England team in 89. So I, I had an in to the team and through him I got to know other players and I'd known Beefy a bit. So, um, yeah, well, Ian was, you know, what can I say? He was larger than life in all ways, on and off the field. And if you happen to come into his orbit socially, you know, buckle up because it was always a hell of a ride. You never had a boring night with Ian Botham. Uh, some of them you couldn't remember at all the next morning. <laughs> some of them you couldn't remember while they were going on. But they and some of them were catastrophic. There was carnage. You know, he weighed, laid waste to whole tracts of um, of South Africa and Australia and, and uh, West Indies in his time. And you know, I just was along for the ride. It was incredible some of the stuff. And what always amazed me was that he was then able to get up the next day and run in and bowl and, 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 you know, hit the ball. Sometimes he, you know, once he, uh, as everyone remembers, forgot to take his bat with him to the middle after a big session the night before. And, you know, you just thought you were teetering on the brink of something all the time <laughs> with beef. You know, you, you had to have resolve. You had to have uh, strength of character to keep up with him. And sometimes, you know, you, you looked at him in awe the next day and thought, how, how I can barely breathe today. And he is running up and bowling in 90 degree hat. He's a, a superhuman. And I'm convinced he had an extra liver when he was born and an extra heart and an extra pair of lungs. Because, frankly, to get through what he did in that period of time and not, you know, have a, be dead by 40 was a, a, a miracle. And I hope he donates his body to medical science when he finally goes, because he'll unlock a lot of mysteries for us, I can tell you. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertzen the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of guys on, on your team at TalkSport who didn't mind a, a, a good time and a night out. You know, Goffey and uh, Mark Woodrow. I remember yeah. one occasion in the Santon Sun Hotel in, in Santon, just on the outskirts of Johannesburg, which has got a big sort of atrium, so you can see up all the, all the floors and the, and the, the corridors, you know, 25 floors up. And um, Ernest, we're having a bit of a, bit of a sing-song, actually. And um, in fact, the next day, the um, the team management was sort of told off by some fans. Your your players are an absolute disgrace, and actually it turned out to be the journalists. And um, of course, the noise would echo upwards through this atrium of the hotel. And at about quarter to four in the morning, character came down, clutching a glass of red wine in his um, bathrobe, and it was it was Bush, Mark Butcher, who said, "Right, what's the next song, lads?" You know, he he, um, he would uh, you know he would uh, enjoy a good time, and then of course, Goffey at I'm sure he's told plenty of stories against himself, but Goffey was uh, occasionally thirsty and, and uh, always up for a, for a good laugh. I remember one occasion in um, um, in Guyana, the um, the Pegasus Hotel in Georgetown, Guyana. He, he, um, a couple of guys were giving him a bit of a hard time, and I think they were going to try and grab his phone. This is in the early days of phone, and he said, "Well, if you do that again, I'll." I was there. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think they, they pushed him in, in the end, didn't they? Pushed he, him in the swimming pool. Yeah, pushed he him in the swimming pool, and he, he went down all guns blazing, swinging, and all the rest of it. it he wasn't. He didn't see the funny side of that, but I'm sure in the end of the evening they all uh, shook hands and made up. No, he did. I remember that. I remember that very, very well. It was. I think it was the oh four that oh four trip uh, for the one days. There's a couple of Barmy Army decided that uh, throwing people in the pool and Goffey made his usual, you know, big Chichilian comment. Anybody pushes me in, I'm going to deck them. And I think as he as they pushed him in, they fell in as well. So he just ambly swam over to them and. Just let one go, bang, yeah, smack one straight yeah. on the end of the nose. And I think me and Fred were straight in to try and pull him off. And <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, the Yorkshireman's going like you'd not believe. He's like a Tasmanian devil in water. So you mentioned characters and Reggie mentioned um, mentioned Beefy. But you wrote, John, you wrote Andrew Flintoff's column for the Sun for a quite a while. That must have been an experience because that was during times of, you know, of the, uh, the sort of crossover of, of, of social media and mobile phones coming into the world. Yeah, we, we had Freddie for probably 10 years, I would think, and uh, occasions when the, the most difficult part of the job was finding him or waking him up, you know. I remember one occasion, I don't think he's, I think you ought to know better than me, Harmony, but I don't think his room was the tidiest, was it? No, no, it wasn't. We were never the tidiest. I seem to remember, you know, half-eaten pizzas and bottles of Coke sort of scattered around the place, but... Uh, they were probably mine. <laughs> That's what you'll see now looking at yeah. him. You, you and him normally had interconnecting rooms, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We had interconnecting rooms because, yeah, I was, as Regil, as Regil vouched for, because Reggie came in and, and did the Mail on Sunday piece for me quite a few times. And Fred would come in in the middle of the middle of the afternoon, just you know, announcing that he was in. And um, and it was, it was I needed somebody to be around me and, and Freddie was scared of the dark. So we decided, right, we'll get interconnecting rooms. We'll leave a door open, my bathroom light on and... Uh, we'll be sorted because we wanted a, a room there. But, you know, the characters that were, were going around at that time and the tours that we were going on during during that spell were were unbelievable. 
and you know, I think, I think, like you said, journalists and players were were close and the close bond. Do you think that helped? Do you think that helped you guys do your job? And do you think sometimes, indirectly, the players might not admit it, but it was actually good for the players to have the journalists, you know, quite close by because of something in common on an away trip. Yeah, I think what I what I'd say now is that all press interaction with the team is is sort of man managed. I mean, it's all press conferences. England players wearing the sponsor's hat or the logo, often a sort of a backdrop behind them with the sponsor's name on. And in fairness, the guy who is in charge of that now, Danny Rubin, does an absolutely brilliant job. If he yeah. couldn't be more helpful, he's fantastic. But the days of just sort of wandering up to a player, maybe in the lobby or having a coffee, have, have almost gone. I mean. Um, there was time you could shuffle you know, and ask, you know, what do you reckon? You know, who's going to play tomorrow? Who do you might be left out? And these days, they tend to, oh, have you spoken to Danny? It's okay, we cleared it with Danny. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, you could just have a chat with somebody. Um, and I think another aspect is that tours now are so condensed. And even now, they, you know, even with the pressure around and there's no COVID, within a week or two, maybe have one practice match, maximum two, and then they're straight into the international games, the test matches and so on. Whereas, I've been, and Reggie hated likewise, I've been on tours of Australia where it's six or seven weeks before they played the first test. And in that period of time, you're popping around the country, lots of time to talk to people, maybe the guys who aren't actually in the 11 of the warm-up games, happy to come out and have a drink and a, and a night out. So I think I think press relations are pretty good now, and that's largely due to Danny Rubin. I think they're a nice bunch of blokes, as it happens, really good guys, but it wasn't quite the same sort of a social interaction as there was 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember some of my best work was done in the bar, frankly. Mm. Uh, and and what you always did was when you did speak to someone in the bar, and they might, you know, there was a lot of pressure on these guys, even though it wasn't the pressure there is now. They were playing for their futures and it was their careers and they, you know, they were up against excellent players as well, all in the same boat. So there was no, initially there was no Barmy Army either. So they mm. had no contact with, you know, ordinary people, if you like, people who were wanted to be supportive of them, Families very rarely came out. So they were in their own company a lot, which is good in some ways and bad in others. So you occasionally you became a bit of an agony uncle or a bit of a confidant as well. You know, someone would want to go out for a drink because they'd had a tough day in the field. They got gnawed or they'd been hit around the park. And they didn't necessarily want to cry on the shoulders of their teammates. So sometimes you found yourself in a situation with a player in a bar when they would actually be pouring their heart out to you because... It was someone they were reaching out and they needed a bit of support. And you respected that always. And, um, you know, as I say, some of my best work was done in the bar. But but always when you had a conversation with someone in the bar, it was always off the record. And then you would go back to the player the next day if you felt there was something that could develop into a story and say, remember what we were talking about last night? Can we put that in the paper? How can we put that in the paper? You would talk to players and 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 you know, it would be a partnership between you and the players. Not all the time, not all the time. Sometimes you just had to be a critic. Sometimes you had to say that he played a terrible shot or he bowled awfully badly or whatever. You had to be true to what you were writing about. But at the same time, because you had that closeness with people, you had a, an empathy with them and you could tell them, tell their side of the story sometimes. If there was a story to be told, you could, you knew what their side of it was. That put you in a privileged position, and sometimes it was good, and sometimes it was tricky. I mean, I remember going on tour to Australia, the tour when Phil Tufnell, who I've written a couple of books with, and I'm currently writing another one now for my sins, um, ended up in a, you know, in a psychiatrist's chair in Perth. 
and, and I got to Adelaide after a long flight and I got into my room and the first thing that happened was the phone rang and it was Phil. And he said, I need to see you now. Come down to the bar. And I went to the bar and there was Phil and there was Graham Thorpe. And Phil told me about everything that had happened about him trashing his room. He was terribly upset. He was going through psychological trauma and he ended up uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a psychiatric um, observation, which he then sort of checked himself out of. And he was about to be sent home from the tour. And that was very early on in the tour. And I had to keep that information for the whole of the tour with everything else that had happened. And of course I was going to do that because he was talking to me as a mate. But I remember towards the end of the tour, people had heard a few things and a few rumours about what had happened. I think, John, you might have been close to it as well, uh, physically. I was very close to it. I was in the room opposite. (laughs) (laughs) So you are in that position where, you know, you have to look after the the players. And and it wasn't all one. It was two-way traffic all the time, I felt. Uh, Occasionally, I felt, you, put, you were put in a position where it was tough to, um, to do your job in that regard because you had to be, you know, you, you know the stuff I didn't tell my newspaper was far more than the stuff I told my newspaper. Uh, and, you know, I, but I told them enough to, for them to continue to employ me for 25 years. So it worked both ways. You've been listening to part one of a conversation between the former England bowler Steve Harmus and the Suns, John Etheridge, and the former Mail on Sunday cricket correspondent Peter Hayter. If you missed any of the show or wish to catch up, uh, you can listen again to the podcast available on the following on feed, now available on the free TalkSport app. We'll be back tomorrow with the second part of this conversation as Harmy, John Etheridge and Peter Hayter go on the road again. Hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertzen the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how.